When Scotland voted on independence from the rest of the UK, some people were surprised it didn't pass. It seemed that the whole establishment was telling Scotland why it couldn't do it, and I firmly believe Scotland could do it. And I was devastated when we didn't get it. Coming up, a panel of Scots describe how they're getting on five months after what they described as the biggest political decision of their lives. I don't like nationalism. If England didn't have the Scots, I mean, how could they think? I mean, the Scots (laughs) rang the empire. I think united we stand, divided we fall. Across the North Sea, Belgium lives with a dual personality, divided between Germanic and Latin Europe. That fault line crosses right through the middle of Belgium. Belgium is usually involved in every continental European conflict. A close look at national identities in Scotland and Belgium, and we remember a First World War tragedy off the coast of Ireland. There are still a lot of unanswered questions about the sinking of the Lusitania. It's all coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. Remember the Lusitania. That was the battle cry that encouraged young British men to enlist in the First World War after the great ocean liner was torpedoed by a German U-boat. And the horror of 1,200 men, women, and children dying in the cold Atlantic off the coast of Ireland encouraged America to eventually join its allies in the Great War. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll remember what happened 100 years ago this May near the Irish port of Kinsale. We'll also check in with friends from Scotland on what they're thinking now that their referendum on independence from the rest of the United Kingdom was defeated. Despite a bloody history of centuries of battles and beheadings, we'll see how the Scots are getting along today and how independent supporters continue to hope for a fully independent nation. Share your thoughts with us by email at radio at ricksteves.com. Let's start with a look at how Belgium deals with its own built-in division between the Flemish-speaking North and its French-speaking South. Hilburn Bies is a lecturer in geopolitics at the European Communication School in Brussels, and he joins us for a look at how a divided Belgium holds together as a nation. Hilburn, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Belgium is really, in a way, at the cultural divide in Europe. Talk about the big cultural tectonic plates that come together in that part of Europe, Belgium. Absolutely. So what we see in Belgium is that we come from the Germanic portion of Europe and it transfers into the Latin or the Francophone part of Europe. And uh, that fault line crosses right through the middle of Belgium and uh, has had the result that Belgium is usually involved in every continental European conflict. That's right, because historically it's France against Germany and, and there's the border right there, France and Germany. But in Belgium... You've got basically a French half and a German half of your country. Yes, we'll call it a Germanic half uh, because they're Dutch-speaking, which is a Germanic language. But I think we can make this distinction that Germanic Europe and Latin Europe meets along this fault line. So we think of of a continental divide when we're driving up a mountain pass and you get to the very top. I just love it when I'm going around the United States and it occurs to me all the rivers on this side of the road flow to the west. All the rivers here flow to the east. When I'm going from Italy up into the Alps, when I cross that one Alpine pass, I realize... I'm leaving all the romantic languages, and ahead of me is all the rain and the strudel and the Germanic languages. Isn't that exciting? It's just half and half. When you think about Belgium being split, could you say it's more Germanic or more romantic? Or is it 50-50, the French and the Germanic parts? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In terms of populations, it is really 50-50. It's 51-49, but that, that, is that that's right? a little is consequence. That close? Yes. Wow. How would you characterize that? Is it like Germany and France? Is one more industrious and one is more, uh, let's have some nice wine and cheese? That would be a very nice way of putting it. But what it tends to be is that one side will have a tendency of voting for political parties that are much less interventionist, and you have another portion. So now we're going to go down to the south of the country where they have a tradition of relying on a socialist mega government to take care of people from well, start to finish. Well, there you go. France would have a, a higher standard for social programs and Germany would have a standard of more like America, you better get it done on your own and, and the government will stay out of your way. That's very much what we see. So uh, to make things clear, in Flanders we'll have a great deal more in the way of smaller businesses and entrepreneurship, where in the south, in Wallonia, as we can call it, so it's Wallonia with a W, uh, we'll find that uh, many ailing industries are have expecting government help. Are, have left populations that are still expecting government help. Now, I do want to make it clear that there are a lot of great entrepreneurs in Wallonia as well who are just as unsatisfied about their socialist tradition bogging them down as as do the Flemish entrepreneurs. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Hilburn Bies about Belgium. Is it one nation or two? And Hilburn, you've brought up two words that might be new to some of our listeners. Flanders and Wallonia, and then there's the Dutch language. What is the Dutch language called in Belgium? 
We'll call it Flemish. Flemish. And is that essentially the same as the Dutch that's spoken in the Netherlands? It is precisely the same language. But it's just called Flemish because it's not in the Netherlands. And then when you are in Wallonia, is the French that is spoken there essentially the same as the French you'd speak in France? Yes. The, the Walloon language has all but disappeared. Uh, it's been replaced by French. And in Flanders, what we have is that the Dutch and the Flemish use the same lexicon, but they will choose different words from it, for instance. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com, and Damon from Scottsdale, Arizona, emailed us. And he wrote, My wife and I were visiting Antwerp several years ago. On the first day, we wanted to buy potato fries at a food stand. We asked in French. The worker glared at us. He did not want to hear French, so we spoke in English, and he was okay with it. So for the next several days in Antwerp, we spoke only English. Was that glare an isolated case? That glare was, to begin with, it's a little bit of a shame because it was, it was a very nice effort on your part to try to use one of the national languages. So the point is, Antwerp is in the Flemish-speaking part of Belgium, and somebody, a tourist in Belgium, might reasonably think everybody is speaking French but not understand the sensibilities. An informed tourist would, would understand that we're in Flanders, most people speak Dutch, would also be sensitive to the fact that not everybody speaks French. But uh, this is something that happens often. There's a sense, a lingering sense of victimization that the, the Flemish have for a long time had to fight for their language. And now it's recognized, now Flanders is this incredible economic region and Flemish is more spoken than ever in, uh, in Belgium and it's very exciting. But you'll still find these lingering emotions that people are very, very attached to. So that was a particular person who was sensitive about this, and you hit him at the right, wrong time with the French when he wanted to hear Flemish. That's correct. He was feeling like the uh, unappreciated little brother of the country there. Now, you mentioned earlier the country is essentially 50-50, split between Germanic and uh, and Romantic. uh, Germanic language speakers and the... Now, Brussels, the dominant city... Would that be French or Flemish? So, so officially, Brussels is a bilingual region. So it means that administratively, one can speak both languages. So it's bilingual. Is that just in order so everybody can relate to their capital, or is it in practice uh, fair for both languages? Brussels has been a Flemish town for many more centuries than it has been speaking French. Mm-hmm. So it means that even up until the 1950s, most working-class neighborhoods were, were Flemish-speaking, and this has reversed in recent years. Hilburn, if you were looking at Belgium just and trying to sort it out, essentially, is it one nation or is it two nations? In fact, you could say that Belgium has three nations insofar as you'll have the people uh, who associate or who claim loyalty to Wallonia, those who claim loyalty to Flanders, but then there's also a Belgian nation. And that is very, that's a very strong nation as well because you'll find that it wakes up at any time when sports are being played internationally and it accounts for a great deal of the commonalities between... So common denominators between Flanders and Wallonia would be sports? Would it be cuisine? Is there certain parts of the cuisine that are specifically Belgian as opposed to Flemish or Wallonia? Most of the cooking that we have in Belgium is Belgian cooking. Now, many of these dishes, they'll always have a regional name. You'll have a waterzooi that's called an Ostend waterzooi because that's where it would have originated from romantically. Waterzooi? Waterzooi, What is that? Waterzooi is a very delicious dish that one makes from fish or chicken, and it becomes sort of a cream of chicken stew, but it's somewhere between a stew and a soup. It's, it's, okay. it's something quite curious. So Belgians would have a warm place in their, in their heart or stomach for that, whether they're the, the north or the south. Absolutely. Nice. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Hilburn Baez about Belgium. Is it one nation or two? What is the relative economic strength of the two regions? Is one dominant from an industrial point of view? Yes, so this is something that's in constant change, but these reversals take a long time. Wallonia, the industrial south of Belgium, was very strong until very recently. When I say very recently, until the 1960s, it was a very strong and sort of an economic powerhouse, which has now reversed because these large industries have slowly closed as they are transferred outside of Europe to the east, and an entrepreneurial spirit from the Flemish has allowed that economy to pick up and now be considerably stronger than Wallonia. So the Flanders economy really is what keeps the engine going in Belgium? At the moment, yes. At the moment. What's the future of the schism? Is there any serious talk of the country splitting up, actually? I don't believe there's a possibility of that. Are there people Uh, that would like that? There are people who claim that they would like that. I don't think that they realize the consequences, first of all, and the expense of that decision. It would be a very expensive decision. Because it's already quite small. Yes. Yes. 
And the easiest way to look at this is that we're going to see a further what we call devolution of Belgium, which means that we're going to see less and less of a federal government, mm -hmm. but we're not going to see the end of an entity called Belgium. Okay. In this so sense, devolution means more local power to accommodate local cultural and stylistic needs? Primarily political needs and fiscal needs. What we're going to see is that competences that are now federal are increasingly being transferred downwards to the regions or otherwise absorbed upwards into transnational institutions. Fascinating. Hilburn Weiss, thanks for joining us as we ponder whether Belgium will be one nation or two, and I like the idea that it's three. It'll continue to be Walloons proud of their French sort of style and the Flemish proud of their Germanic heritage, but they'll all be Belgians. As a tour guide, take me to Flanders and then take me to Wallonia and give me one experience I should have in each half of Belgium that is just a way to appreciate and celebrate that part of the country. In Flanders, I would certainly walk into one of the great Flemish cities and visit their, their vibrant nature, see how well it is going there. What uh, would the city be? What, name um, a couple of cities. I would take you to Ghent, Bruges, Ypres, to Courtrai, as they call it, Antwerp, any of these places where you can just flavor that beautiful northern Renaissance architecture and see its evolution in reverse back to the Middle Ages. To, uh, it does have that, that northern renaissance kind of triumph, like you'd find in, in Amsterdam or something like this. Okay, and then in Wallonia in the south. In Wallonia, what you'll find is beautiful landscapes, rolling hills of farmland, moving slowly into the slightly more mountainous Ardennes, where you'll find some very dramatic castles. The nobility in France after the revolution took refuge in in Belgium, what we have is a tradition of very old families, beautiful, beautiful castles, some of which are the most elegant in the world. So they're going to cut off the French king's head and the revolution's going on and noble people are thinking, you know, let's pack up and move north. And they still kept their French language and culture, but they settled down in the south of Belgium. Well, let's, let's say that French used to be like English today. When they moved north into Belgium, they spoke French like any, any nobility mm -hmm. anywhere in Europe. The local language, Walloon, is something that has slowly disappeared because it was replaced by French in the national education system at the inception of the country Belgium. So you've got that French love of life, you've got the rolling hills, you've got some castles, and you've got a reason to go both to the south and the north next time you go to Belgium. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Hilburn Bies, who's from Brussels, which artfully dances in that, that little middle zone of Belgium where half of the people are Flemish and half of the people are French-speaking Walloons. And Hilburn, thanks so much for helping us understand the intricacies of your country. It's been a tremendous pleasure. Tensions between Scotland and England came to a head last September when the residents of Scotland got a chance to vote on seceding from the rest of the United Kingdom. We'll get a personal look at the issues and emotions that the Scottish referendum raised for three of our Scottish friends next on Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you prepare for your trip to a foreign country by learning a new language through talking to a native speaker. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Last year was quite a busy one for Scotland. Politicians made threats and promises, and people got engaged in politics like never before. They had a chance to get the attention of their national government in London, which many complained was unresponsive to their concerns. Voters in Scotland were given the option in September to choose to become a fully independent nation. They decided by 10 percentage points 
to remain in the UK. Independent supporters are still hopeful for another chance sometime down the line. But however they voted, Scots will tell you how proud they are of the civilized way they were able to debate and disagree on the issues that matter to them and to their future. We've reassembled the Scottish panel who helped us explore the independence referendum last year for a closer look at what it meant to them and to see how they're moving forward. We're joined by Liz Lister from Fife, Anne Doig from Edinburgh, and Colin Mares from Glasgow. Liz, how would you describe what this opportunity meant for Scotland? Well, Scotland were given an opportunity to make a two-way decision in a referendum. And the question was quite simple. There was no third option. It was, did we want to remain part of the United Kingdom or did Scotland want autonomy to become an independent nation? There was a long run-up to the referendum itself, um, a lot of talking, a lot of politicking. There were changes to the system in that the voting age was reduced to 16 years of age. So there was a lot of discussion went on in Scotland this year. And I would have to say that I was very impressed by the level of that discussion It wasn't petty nationalism, it was high-quality debate. Scots recognised that this was an important decision they were making. And what was the date of the election? The date was 18th September 2014. Now, I was impressed by the calibre of the discussion, and I'm also impressed by the fact that people lost and they still are on the team. I mean, that is quite impressive. Colin, when you think of how Scotland handled this, there must have been huge disappointment, but everybody is still on board, or am I romanticising it? Well, it was certainly the most interest there's been in politics in Scotland for forever. People who previously had no interest in politics suddenly were, were hooked on it. And I think that's, to some extent, not as much as it was just prior referendum, mm-hmm. but to some extent that's continuing. So there's a residual, and people are now still more engaged. And that, that's a, a positive thing. Yeah. Particularly the young people, which is amazing, because the turnout was amazing. It was the highest voting rate they brought the uh, age of voting down to 16 years. Was yeah. that a strategic move by one party thinking yes. that would yes. be to their advantage? What, what was behind that, Anne? Because young people, and looking at the statistics, I mean, as a guess, before it happened, people were asking me, is it geographical? Is it gender orientated? Yes or no? And I always thought it was um, age. Age. Were young, young people, people more yes, likely? And older people like me. We'd say no. Well, but that's kind of older people would be more risk averse and conservative. Yeah. And let's just all make do. Mm-hmm. And younger people are kind of going, let's go for it. Yes. Is that how it panned out when they analyzed the election afterwards? Yeah, it, it was, did. Yeah. Colin's got the statistics. Uh, it was between 16 and 17 year olds, 71% of them voted yes. Is that right? Yeah. But you um, still lost the uh, independence. But what was the final tally? The final tally was 55% no, 45% yes. So if you had brought the voting age down to 12, <laughs> you might be independent <laughs> yeah, at this point. Yeah. <laughs> We're just going to keep bringing it down and down. <laughs> Liz, what would Scotland want for independence? What were the gripes? Why would you break away from so much great history? Well, to say that there was gripes is to make a negative decision. It was all about Scotland has a pride as a nation and that there are differences which are not always recognised with England. It's like sharing a bed with an elephant. England is a massive nation. And it's not about, we don't want you. It's about us. It was about a pride in our own identity. So Scotland wanted to be more Scottish. And some people made the case that if we're independent, we can be who we are. We can celebrate our own identity. We have a strong identity. And we have, with a devolved parliament, we have the ability to make our own decisions. But there's still, particularly in the area of fiscal policy, there's still the control of Westminster. So when you say devolved parliament, a decade or so ago, London gave more control to internal affairs to Scotland. You've got your parliament in Edinburgh that we can visit. Mm -hmm. And that's news, really. Absolutely. And people said that it wouldn't work. And it has worked very successfully. And so some would argue that this was a natural progression to give more power to the Scots. Now, Colin, my understanding was the way the choice was written, Mm -hmm. it was either complete independence or complete status quo. And it put Scottish people in a bind because many people wanted something somewhere in the middle. If you had written the law and could make the vote again, how would you have changed it? (laughs) I would have kept it as it was because I think that was a good way to see do we really want it or do we not want it. But the third option that a lot of people wanted to see on the ballot was what we're calling Devo Max. So as we currently have devolution, it's oh, Devo, more, more devolution. devolution. Yeah, see, yeah. I feel like that would have been a nice well, compromise. Yeah. And then Third way. And that was a version of Devo Max was offered at the very last minute by the side that wanted us to vote no. And I feel, I mean, I'm sceptical, but I think a lot of people just bought that. Yeah. Uh, 
last minute deal and that was why it ended up no. David Cameron, the Prime Minister, wouldn't allow Devo mm-hmm. Max to begin with. It had to be yes or no. Mm-hmm. And he put his neck on the line because if it had been yes, he oh, would no longer be but Prime then Minister. As, as the date approached, it seemed like Scotland might break away. Therefore, London said, we can give you more yes. rights yeah. if you vote to stay with yeah. us. We'll, yes. we'll, we'll encourage you. All the it polls in the run-up, most of the polls, in fact, said it would be no but then there was one big poll that came out and said it's going to be yes. And that was when David Cameron After said, Devo oh, oh. Max. Yep. So there were some concessions. So Scotland voted to stay with London, but what were the concessions? If you were a Scottish independence person, what did you win from losing the election? I think Liz? it's important, first of all, to understand what the trade-off was. The trade-off was the two questions in exchange for the voting age being lowered to 16. Mm. And right through the campaign from the very beginning, David Cameron and the Westminster government were extremely complacent. All the polls in the early stages were showing that there was no chance that Scots were going to vote. And we had very much American-style politics in terms of television debates. And those television debates were probably the weakest aspect, the poorest aspect, because they were dramatising it. And it came down to shouting and it came down to single questions. What were the Scots going to do by way of currency? Answer the question, answer the question. And many of the questions couldn't be answered it would all come down to negotiation after the decision was made. So as it began to get closer to the event and the tides began to turn and the polls began to change, just like Quebec, there was panic. And so everything was being thrown at the Scots to try and appease them and try and get that vital no vote for the establishment. And it worked. It worked. In Scotland, are people comfortable saying how they voted? Yes. Yes. Uh, Let me just, I'm just curious how all (laughs) of you voted. Uh, Anne, how did you vote? Definite no. <laughs> you voted no, you wanted to stay with London. UK, stay UK, in the UK. UK, yeah. Not just London. Right, so you're part of this we, family. We like, <laughs> we like Liverpool and Newcastle and I don't like nationalism, just straight out. It's kind of scary. Nationalism can oppress people and if England didn't have the Scots, I mean, how could they think? I mean, the Scots <laughs> rang the empire. I think united we stand, divided we fall. Wow. That's my opinion. Wow, you should be a spokesperson for that campaign. That's <laughs> no, very good. I, the figures, you know, they made a lot of mistakes about Scotland's relationship to Europe if we broke away. So I was a definite no. In the end, I was Switzerland in January, but I was a definite no in the end. Oh, so you learned it <laughs> We've already been debating this before we came in. Ah. Fur and feathers flying. <laughs> <laughs> it must be kind of fun, actually, because you're all still, still Scottish. still good friends. Oh, yes. <laughs> Liz Lister, how did you vote? I was undecided until the day of the vote. I took it very seriously. I did a lot of research. I did an online course and it was a heart and a head. The heart was very definitely, I had a strong heart beating with a passion for Scotland. But I have a pension, I have a bank account and what would happen to my bank account the day after? So the head was saying, urge caution here. But on the day of it, it seemed that the whole establishment was telling Scotland why it couldn't do it. And I firmly believe Scotland could do it. And I went in there totally committed to a yes vote. And I was devastated when we didn't get it. Everybody must have been on pins and needles not knowing how it was going to turn out. Absolutely. Cullen, how did you vote? I voted yes, and my decision was made up long, long ago. And he's only 12. You're the the 16-year-old vote, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. he's 12. (laughs) But but my family, well, most of my family also are on the yes side. So I think family's the biggest influence always in voters. I think it was... It was more of a movement for yes. It was a cultural movement and there were songs being written. There was all kinds of creative things happening. Yeah. The yes campaign were so much more better on social media, whereas the no really? campaign, maybe that's... The younger. Maybe that reflects the, the younger. Old, young yeah. and old I would again. be I would be a lot but, like Liz. It would be heart and head. Mm. My heart would mm. say yes, but my head would say, but what about the value of our currency if we have to break away from the pound or something like this? We're getting an inside look at politics in Scotland with tour guide friends Colin Mares from Glasgow... Liz Lister from Fife, and Anne Doig, who lives in Edinburgh. They're updating us on the big referendum vote they had in Scotland on September 18th last year, when the only question on the ballot was, should Scotland be an independent country? The no votes won, 55 to 45 percent. Except the yes side got a majority in Scotland's largest city, Glasgow, that's where Colin's from, and in the working-class city of Dundee, not far from Liz's home in Fife. Do I understand that it was not an issue of rich and poor, like working class and big business interests, or north and south, you know, the highlands and the area closer to the border, or educated and uneducated? Not really, but business definitely was was a no. Mm. And Alex Salmon, who's the leader of the Scottish National Party and the first minister for Scotland, 
his constituencies, the northeast of Scotland, which is Aberdeen, where all the oily boys are, and he completely misread his constituency because he was walking around Turriff and they were booing him because they're oily boys, they're from all around the world, and they did not want to break up with the UK. Big business definitely yeah. didn't. I'm more left of centre, I have to mm-hmm. say. But, you know, my head was running this one. And, you know, with a mother in a nursing home, I feel that a larger pool of the taxpayers to look after healthcare, etc., smaller country, would be more difficult. And can you make a case that Scotland is essentially free to be Scottish right now as yes. part of the United Kingdom? Yeah, when we united, you know, it was the, the crowns in 1603 and then the parliaments in 1707, but they were going to call Scotland North Britain. I mean, that just never happened. Scotland right. kept its identity, and probably because of Walter Scott, etc., but they kept a very strong identity and always has. And I just feel that sometimes the sort of nationalism is a bit of a chip on the shoulder. And a lot of the decisions, we were discussing this earlier, that happened that, that were not in favour of Scotland have already been done, like the negotiations mm-hmm. with Europe over the fisheries and the oil. It's already been done. One of the reasons for Scotland wanting independence is that a lot of the main issues affecting Scotland were very badly negotiated by the UK Parliament. Fishing, oil, etc. But it's done now, and we can't undo it. Mm. And I feel it would be damaging, we'd become economically a a sort of shadow zone, a tiny little country, Mm -hmm. if we did break away, especially given the international situation with terrorism, etc., If we stay with a larger power, we've got an influence in the world. And the Scots are really smart. The Scots are smart. I mean, Scotland has a heritage of being well-educated and engaged. And and, I think we should contribute to the world, not just to Scotland. So you're a a key player as part of the United Kingdom. Can I just come in on the the rich and poor? I would describe it as the haves and the Mm have-nots, the people who had most to lose. I think that was the biggest division in Scotland. And it was actually very interesting because on the tour, I take my group in on a Saturday night to a very staunch nationalist pub in Inverness, where there's a group called Shahalian who have been staunchly SNP for years and years. And the, the week before the referendum took place, I had the group in there and the place was absolutely jumping. Mm. And the lead singer in the band, um, who's quite a character, Kenny, he said, well, it's a historic night here. The last week that we'll be playing in a country that belongs to the United Kingdom. And he says, and the price of beans in Asdas, which is the equivalent to Walmart's, still hasn't shot through the roof (laughs) because the whole establishment was doom and gloom. What would happen? You know, that we would go belly up the day after the Scots made it. So it was... So their doom and and gloom didn't really pan out. You know, the price of beans hadn't gone up. Big big media was very much against the yes vote. There was one newspaper, in fact, not only the Sunday newspaper of it, which openly said they supported a yes vote. That was the Sunday Herald. But I understand Glasgow and Dundee were the only cities that voted yes. Well, and, yeah. and these are working class these industrial are the have cities. Nots. These are the have-nots. Yeah. So there was sort of a yeah. class thing going on of here. The, of the 32 council areas that Scotland's divided to, there were three voted yes. It was Glasgow, Dundee and North Lanarkshire, which is right so next to So what can you conclude from that? Post-industrial cities, uh, they have a lot more working class. 63% of Labour voters, traditional Labour voters, voted yes. Less to lose, more nationalistic. Huge disillusion with the Labour Party. Our friends Anne Doig, Liz Lister and Colin Mayers are explaining the big independence vote they had in Scotland last September and how it influences their Scottish identity today. As Scotland continues as a part of the United Kingdom with England, Wales and North Ireland. You know, one of the reasons that I would have voted yes was to get rid of the nuclear deterrent we got rid of the nuclear deterrent, it's over a thousand jobs. The shipbuilders and all the blue-collar workers in Glasgow want to be in the UK. Plus, by generation, they were in unions. They were more international than national. And if you spoke to the individual working people, I think it was the young people in Glasgow, unemployed, no hope, yeah, let's have a go at this. But the older people with more experience... So they your case is still it. is a youth and an older people sort of yeah. divide. But, uh, but it seems like there's a little bit of the class stuff going on too. But I'm curious about the North Sea oil. Scotland has all this wealth. Is there a feeling in Scotland that the UK hey, has all the UK is getting the wealth <laughs> and, and we're getting a bit of it, but it's really all ours anyways? Yeah, well, I mean, when the oil was discovered in 1970s, 
there was a slogan that started, which was, it's Scotland's oil. The tax money, it goes straight to Westminster. It goes right to London. their coffers and divided, well, to what degree fairly does, or unfairly, amongst the rest of the UK. To what degree does Britain subsidise Scottish affluence, and to what degree does Scotland subsidise Britain? Scotland is the fourth largest contributor of the 12 UK regions to the economy. So people get sidetracked and think that Scotland is, um, they talk about the whinging Scots, the whining Scots who are always looking, standing there with their cap in hand. And a lot of people get sidetracked by the oil and say that the whole issue of independence was based on the oil revenue. That is not the case. Scotland is a very successful country, but the oil gave a cushion. As, okay. as Alex Salmon said, countries across the world would die to have that oil. I would say oil was not the, the why, but it would be a part of the how. So it would have helped Scotland be an independent country. That's obviously but a lot what of Liz is saying, oil, Scotland has a strong ec- economy anyway. Yeah, yeah, we've got other big things. One of the other major industries is whiskey. So currently all the tax from whiskey, which is very heavily taxed, goes to London. You know, after all the dust settled, how much, because I know England sort of desperately promised things if people would vote to stay with the UK. What did Scotland gain, and from the election, from a person who wanted to be independent but wasn't? Well, they're supposed to have gained Devo Max, which means the third mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. more powers, tax-raising powers for the Scottish they Parliament. They made those promises. Do they follow through with those promises? Well, it's gone quiet, hasn't it? Mm. And what my fear is, it just means that more tax-raising power, which is a good thing. You don't want to have a country that's not taxed. Look at mm-hmm. India. But more tax-raising power, we're not really trusting politicians so well. We're doing okay, I think, within the union, because you mentioned before, yeah, Scotland's oil, but, you know, you've heard about this thing called the Barnet formula, where the money from the Treasury is divided up within the political regions within the UK. That's local councils, you know, Mm -hmm. like Manchester. Scotland gets more than £2,000 per person, more than people in London. Part of the referendum was that the yes got it all wrong with Scotland's relationship to Europe if we got a yes vote. I mean, they got it completely wrong. I mean, the currency argument, the whole thing was really bad. And very, very important is the whole of the Western Isles, which is really isolated. Orkney, Shetland were a definite no because they didn't care whether they were ruled by Edinburgh or London. And they want the money from the European Union. So and they, if there was they said no, meaning no, no independence, stay with no, the UK. No, stay with the UK because they wanted to stay within Europe because they're under target one funding from Europe. I want to give the yes side a chance to respond to what Anne has just told us. So we'll conclude our analysis of the Scottish secession vote in just a moment on Travel with Rick Steves. Also coming up, if you find that some of the projects you're working on just never seem to get completed, you might get motivated by some of the great unfinished works of art you'll see in Europe. We'll explore that plus the upcoming centennial of the sinking of the steamship Lusitania. Stay with us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com ricksteves. We've been looking at the aftermath of Scotland's vote to forego becoming independent from the UK with Anne Doig, Colin Mares, and Liz Lister. A moment ago, Anne outlined reasons she voted against secession. However, Colin and Liz voted yes. Let's take a few more minutes to explore how Scots who took different sides in September are getting along today. Liz, I saw you responding to Anne's thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) We're still friends. (laughs) You can imagine in the pubs, in the supermarket, in the doctor's (laughs) surgery, this was the debate that was going on. Everywhere people were talking about this. And nobody knew the answer. There was no easy answer. There was tough decisions to be made. But I think Anne makes a very valid point that the attitude towards Europe is very different in Scotland. And so people in Scotland generally want to be part of the European Union because of the advantage which it brings to them. More so than the United Kingdom in general. And at the moment, we're talking about going for a referendum. So all the arguments that were used towards Scotland for staying part of the UK are now being turned completely around by those that want to come out of Europe. I think an important point also just to pick up on is, so Anne's mentioned a couple of times about nationalism and about ugly nationalism, but the nationalism in Scotland, it isn't Nazi, it isn't right-wing fascist, it's it's an inclusive nationalism. (laughs) And 
maybe maybe it shouldn't be called nationalism. Maybe it should be called something else. But it's a an inclusive nationalism, and it's it's pro immigration. The Yes movement would want more people to come to Scotland to help. Because nationalism can get a so, kind of a dangerous yes, edge to yeah, it now with yeah, everything that's going yeah, on it's here. It's, not, it's national it's not pride. Not and Scottish, I have to admit that I'm prejudiced that way because uh-huh. I did my thesis on Nazi Germany <laughs> and I've got a knee-jerk reaction to nationalism. Yeah. I, really I, will, has. I, will, I will admit there are, you know, there are... Nationalism gone wild in the case of Germany. There, yeah, are, so there just, are parts of that within the Yes uh, movement. Oh, I didn't realise there was an SNP. SNP is the Scotland National Party. Scottish Nationalist Party. But if I can just sort of interject here, for me... One of the, you know, we're talking about post-referendum. One of the scariest things is that one of the main reasons, really, that Scotland should be independent is at the moment we've got a Conservative coalition with the Liberal Democrats. Scotland has only got two Conservative members of Parliament in the UK government. It's just one. Mm-hmm. It's there's, just one. There's more pandas in Scotland than there are Conservatives. <laughs> more pandas in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> we've got a coalition government. <laughs> so we're not being represented in the UK Government. So that's one reason that I would have voted yes. But now, post-referendum, people are going to not vote Labour. They're going to vote SNP. And it's a vote for the Conservatives. And the Conservatives, I don't like them so much. <laughs> I, I hope the listeners are getting some idea of how complicated it was. <laughs> I'm getting because an idea of that. It was about economic. It was about passion. It was also political because it would have been the end of the Labour Party in the UK. And the master stroke of the No campaign, who were losing the flooding um, voters coming over to the yes side. And what they did was to bring in a highly respected former Prime Minister, Scott Gordon Brown, mm-hmm. at the last moment. And Gordon Brown, unlike the rest of the UK now, holds a great deal of respect in Scotland. And they used him to come in and spearhead their campaign and say that there would be Devo Max. And because he was respected and because wow. people liked him, a lot went over the days before. Because and even you guys who have thought so hard and long about this, you were on the edge. And, and so his overriding passion was his politics, his labour over his country. And so people like me have no time now because he sold us down the river and then moved on and has mm. had nothing more to do with the discussions that have come but since. Gordon Brown wasn't popular. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> You know, with all this discussion, the Queen has a warm spot in her heart for Scotland, doesn't she? Yeah, she does, oh. yeah. She has. She's got her castle, Balmoral, which is her private residence. Is there any hard feelings uh, from the royal family, or is everything well, okay now? Thrilled. We don't really know, but well... well they're she, thrilled you're still in the United Kingdom. <laughs> Apparently, after the result, uh, David Cameron, Prime Minister of the UK, spoke to the Queen on the phone, and his, his comments that he was overheard saying was, she purred down the phone. What does yeah. that mean? She purred down the phone, you know, purring like a cat. She purred down yeah. the phone. Yeah, he didn't say what she said, but... Well, when she opened the devolved Scottish Parliament, she did make in her speech that I was crowned Queen of the United Kingdom, Scotland, Uh England, and she made that point. She she definitely wants to hold the the Union together. So she must be thankful, and they pulled out all the stops, and Mm. from her point of view, and and for most Scottish people, thank goodness the United Kingdom survives. Just to wrap things up here, a hundred years from now, how will Scotland be related to the United Kingdom? Uh, Cullen Mares. I think Scotland will be independent within 50 years. Ooh, Liz Lister. I think it was a once-in-a-generation opportunity with the oil. The oil will be squandered. We'll no longer have that cushion. And so while I would like to see it, I'm not as convinced as Scotland. In the future, you'll be more needy to be yes, part of the yes. union. And Andoig, what do you think the, the future holds in store for Scotland vis-a-vis the United Kingdom? Well, they're talking about in 10 years' time having another referendum, so I think there might be another referendum. Ah, we'll go through this again in a decade. Well, we'll have you all back then, and we'll discuss (laughs) this again. Thank you so much for giving us a Scottish insight into this exciting chapter in the history of the United Kingdom. Pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. A hundred years ago, the United Kingdom still included Great Britain and all of Ireland. On May 7, 1915, a German U-boat sank the ocean liner Lusitania off the coast of Ireland's County Cork. The staggering loss of life became a rallying cry for the First World War. Tour guide Barry Maloney was raised in the port town of Kinsale, just a few miles from where the ship went down, and he joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves for a look at what happened just off the south coast of Ireland. Well, it's a fascinating story because there are still a lot of unanswered questions about the sinking of the Lusitania. First of all, what was it and why did it go down? She was the fastest ship in the world when she was built, built in Scotland, the RMS Lusitania. She became the first steamship in the world to cross the Atlantic in less than five days. Wow. And this is just before World War I began. Her normal route was Liverpool, New York, mm-hmm. and back. And on her 201st crossing in the middle of World War I, she was torpedoed. 
by a German U-boat. And this is the first incident, really, in World War I of what we now would describe as total war. That's right, because this was to terrorize the civilian population, really, to bring down a, a luxury liner. Well, the Germans were trying to cut off the British from supplies. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Europe was in deadlock, trench warfare. Mm-hmm. They were trying to starve each other out, basically. The English could cut off the Germans easily, supply routes across the Atlantic. And this actually brought the United States into the war, didn't it? Well, not directly, but it had a huge influence on public opinion in America Mm -hmm. because it was very easy then for the British to paint them as innocent victims and the Germans as villains. Wow, so it did have a civilian, a civilian craft like the Titanic. And the mystery that hovers over the Lusitania name today is the fact that it sunk in 18 minutes. 18 minutes? As a result of one torpedo hit. And now, why, why is that controversial? Well, if you compare that to the Titanic, the Titanic hit the iceberg, as you know, and was breached open for about 300 feet, yet it took about three hours to sink. Right. So how could one torpedo sink such a huge ship so quickly? And when it was hit by the torpedo, there were two explosions, one torpedo. So the conspiracy theory is, or the question is, was there arms aboard? In other words, was a neutral America secretly helping England in the war by shipping high explosives to Liverpool? And that second explosion would have been the armaments on board explosion? Is that a- This is the question. This is one of the theories. And the only way we can answer this is through salvage work. And that's going on on the wreck right as we speak. Wow. And what are, what are they discovering with this salvage work? Well, so far it's been explored a number of times. The man that's doing it at the moment is Greg Bimis mm-hmm. from New Mexico. The National Geographic television channel are filming this. And so far, a number of theories have emerged. One is coal dust ignited. Mm -hmm. The second is the boiler rooms exploded with coal seawater hit Mm -hmm. the hot boiler rooms. And the most controversial would be a store of explosives. But the problem for the explorers is the ship rests on the side that was hit by the torpedo. So the evidence is hidden beneath the ship. Wow. How far away is this from where you live in Kinsale? Uh, from the old, you know the old head of Kinsale, which is the peninsula yeah. off the town? Mm-hmm. From land there, it's just over 10 miles. 10 miles. And how many people died in the Lusitania sinking, roughly? Just short of 1,200. Whoa. So in that's tw- hor- in 20 minutes. Horrible human loss. Horrible impact on the town. Now, you grew up in Kinsale. Was, was Lusitania, were there stories about heroic rescues and suffering on parts of the passengers? Or what was the impact in your in your youth? Oh, definitely. Well, it's a local legend because... The courthouse in Kinsale was the first to have an inquest, reaching a verdict that the Kaiser of Germany was guilty of willful murder of those civilians. And also the local legend that survives is, believe it or not, from fishermen. You see, when the torpedo hit the ship, no one in Kinsale heard that, but fishermen knew something had happened. Why? Because they were netting salmon, and their nets filled so heavy full of salmon, they couldn't haul the nets. So the... The concussion of the explosion... The shockwaves. The shockwaves of the Lusitania actually shoved and scared all the salmon into the fishermen's nets. My goodness. Now, when we visit Kinsale or Ireland today, how can we uh, factor in a little bit of sightseeing with this Lusitania lore? Well, it's very exciting. I know it's a very tragic and sad story, but what's very exciting locally in Kinsale at the moment is the plan for locals to open a museum dedicated to the Lusitania for the centenary. Ah, okay, and this is in Kinsale? Right out on the old head of Kinsale. Okay. Right out on the point. An old signal tower, 200 years old, is being planned to convert. Today, before that opens, are there any museums in the south of Ireland that deal with this tragedy? What's the best one existing? The courthouse itself in Kinsale, where the Mm -hmm. inquest happened, is a museum. Okay. Which is fascinating to visit. You can visit Cove. Now, Cove is spelled a little differently. How do you spell Cove? Spelled C-O-B-H. C-O-B-H, and it's near Cork. Near Cork. And it's Cove, and this is a very uh, charming port town to visit with a great museum of, what, maritime history? Maritime history museum, famous as the last port of call of the Titanic. Okay. But also, there's a mass grave of Lusitania victims, because the Cunard Line offices were in Cove. Ah. And a lot of the unidentified bodies were brought to Cove. 1,200 bodies, 1,200 casualties. Yeah, well, 1,200 casualties, but the vast majority of bodies were lost, never recovered. Right. Only uh, less than 300 were recovered. How many people survived? Just over 750. What survived, a... Including what a, the captain. The captain survived. He broke down in tears, giving evidence in the Kinsale inquest. Now, you're talking about the, the head of Kinsale. Kinsale is a beautiful town in itself. It's famous for the cuisine. Mm-hmm. It's also famous for its star fort. Talk a little bit about the military and maritime sightseeing in Kinsale, in your town in the sure, south. Of, uh, sure, Charles uh, Fort is a 17th century star-shaped fort overlooking the harbor, built so that from there you could see 
the entire harbour, defend the entire harbour, mm. and see the old Helvacan Sail Lighthouse, which okay. is a signal tower, which could warn the fort of enemy ships approaching. So Kinsale was a strategic port, really. Strategic port, and that means today, for sightseers, to go and explore the fort. They've got a beautiful, beautiful view. It obviously wasn't built as a sightseeing mm-hmm. spot, but you couldn't get a better panoramic view of a perfect harbour. So on our next trip to Ireland, we can remember Kinsale, K-I-N-S-A-L-E, mm-hmm. a place famous for its beautiful food. And history. And its history, its military history, the Star Fort, which was a state-of-the-art fort in its day, a couple centuries ago, and as the centenary of the sinking of the Lusitania approaches, we'll have a new museum there about that tragic event. And just one thing about the museum as well, if anyone listening has personal family connections, that museum would love to hear from you because they will be having a commemoration of the sinking exactly at the moment, on the 7th of May 2015, exactly to the second of when the tragic sinking happened. So if they want to get in touch, I leave the details with you and they can get in touch. We'll put it on our website in the radio corner at ricksteves.com. Barry Maloney, thank you so much and we'll stay tuned for the outcome of this salvage operation and to find out if indeed the Lusitania was smuggling arms in or if it was a completely a civilian ship that went down. That's it, yeah. A hundred years ago in 2015. Thanks, Rick. Barry Maloney leads walking tours of Kinsale. You'll find a link to his website in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Today, my original travel buddy from high school, Gene Openshaw, co-authors the Rick Steves Europe 101 Guidebook to Art and History. Gene joins us right now for a look at some of the unfinished works that can be high points on your next trip to Europe. You know, we all have unfinished plans, that half-written screenplay in the drawer the postponed vacation to South America, or even just the garage that needs cleaning. But suppose your grandiose plans were left unfinished for everyone to see, for all of history. Gene, there are unfinished projects all over Europe, and some of them are famous because they're unfinished. Probably the best example that I can think of is one that everybody's seen. If you've been to see Michelangelo's David, Mm -hmm. I mean, David is finished. It's perfect. Mm -hmm. But in the nave lining up to... David, are those four lumpy blocks of stone. Those were the prisoners, the unfinished statues by Michelangelo. You know, they're they're glorious in their own way because they seem to be caught in the marble and struggling to free themselves from their stone prisons. But they were unfinished statues for a project, the tomb of Julius II, that was itself unfinished. Michelangelo, at the end of his life, called the whole waste of time a tragedy. Wow. And it was just all because different egos came in and they were his boss and they said, stop this project, do that project? Politics, money, Michelangelo's own poor work habits. But it's a blessing in disguise in a lot of ways because we can actually see Michelangelo's creative process, what he was thinking as he carved that beautiful marble. You even see the chisel marks on those. So in that sense, these unfinished works are still glorious. So when we go to see David, as we all will when we're in Florence, don't miss the prisoners, the cheering squad that leads you down the nave to David, which is right (laughs) under the dome. (laughs) How about Gothic cathedrals? Because, uh, you know, these were a big undertaking in the Middle Ages. They took generations and generations, and and some of them were uh, partially finished. Even the ones that were finished uh, probably weren't finished the way they're Hmm. originally designed. Think of like, uh, you know, very famous Notre Dame with its two towers. Right. Well, those two towers originally were meant to have two tall steeples on top of them. Was that just a money issue? It was both money and because later architects thought, oh, who wants to put a dorky pointed steeple on there? Now, that is interesting because things that took 100 years to build... Styles change. If somebody started a building 100 years ago in our society, it would be different. It was finished today. Look at Chartres Cathedral. It has two great spires, two completely different spires. They're mismatched. Yeah, one of them's tall, one of them's short. Two different architects, <laughs> two different times that they built it. Another great example, Siena. In fact, that's the best example, I think, mm-hmm. of an unfinished work. And you go there, you know, you, you love Siena. I love Siena. You love the church. I love the church. You step in there and you go, what do you mean this church is unfinished? It's beautiful. It's got a beautiful facade. It's got great art inside. You know, those uh, floor mosaics, Mm. those marble inlaid Mm. floors. But then you realize that the church of today is really not finished. It was really only about a third of their original grandiose dream. You see, they began the church in the 1300s. 
Oh, but then the Black Plague came along. And then the Black Plague came along. Well, no, the Black Plague, everybody's construction plans are affected when the Black Plague hits your town. Like a third of the population dies. Bring out your dead. No, I'm not dead yet, I know. (laughs) (laughs) So you're building this grand, incredible cathedral. Did they just decide then, well, let's just cut our losses and we'll cap it off here. And the transept actually becomes the, quote, finished cathedral. That's right. So today's nave is what was going to only be the transept of this enormous cathedral that would have extended me about 150 yards to the right. Six or 700 years later, I would bet a lot of the visitors don't even realize that they're standing in the nave of the original church, and they're kind of going, wow, this is big. Yep, but you can see that original nave if you go outside and circle around to the right side of the church, Mm -hmm. and you can actually see these unfinished walls. Now, bringing it up right up to date, Gene, one of the great great unfinished buildings in Europe today is in Barcelona, the Sagrada Familia. And in a lot of ways, it's like one of these grandiose medieval building projects, but it was started just uh, in the last century uh, by Antonio Gaudí. Yeah, Gaudí worked on it uh, for the last uh, about 40 years of his life. Mm -hmm. Um, And since then, it has been continued by other architects, but it's kind of moved forward in fits and starts. Uh, You know, when I go there, I'm always chafing a little bit at the expensive admission price, but then I remember this admission price is actually funding the ongoing construction, and I feel better about paying the 15 or 20 bucks it costs to go in because I'm, I'm contributing to the completion of what I think is the greatest building project of the 20th and 21st century in Europe. And you and I can see that our money that we've contributed has actually done some good because think of your first visit to Sagrada Familia. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, when I was there, it was, it was just an empty shell. With a facade. With a facade. And now it's been consecrated. They're actually having masses in there, and you don't have to wear a hard hat to go, you know, <laughs> to the apps. Or bring your umbrella because <laughs> it's raining on you. The so, roof's on, the light pours in. It's, it's really quite beautiful. And they're on track to finish this thing. They're intending to finish it by the year 2026. That would be the 100th anniversary of when Gaudi first started it. Wow, if there's any building that I'd, I'd love to see finished, it's the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. Well, let's do that. Let's, you and I, uh, let's meet there in 2026 for the dedication ceremonies. Okay, bring your children. Or your grandkids. It's a date. Gene, <laughs> it's been fun riffing on culture with you. As always, it's a good reminder that a little art and a little history can add a whole new dimension to your travels. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. You can listen again on demand and find guest information in the details for each week's show. It's updated weekly in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, giving you feedback on your pronunciation as you learn a new language to help your language be clear and authentic sounding to the native ear. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.